Mackling, McNabb, McGarry returns tomorrow. Good morning, Loren McNabb. Good morning, my friend. It was um, what not what you would call a slow news day yesterday. Sometimes Mondays in the summertime can be a little bit slow. I don't think we've had a slow news day in about three years. No. You know, the summer doldrums sometimes take over and it's difficult to to find things to talk about. No shortage of things to discuss this morning. Well, I think people sometimes like to, to take a break, right? And, and it's not just uh, the people who make policy, make laws, you know, are responsible for, you know, much of the way we live. But, you know, we have some downtime and you like to walk away a bit and just relax. And uh, I was pulling into the house and we did all sorts of back to school shopping yesterday, pull into the house at six o'clock and watched uh, Global News and thought, oh, man, we got a lot to talk about to <laughs> tomorrow, which is now, of course, today at uh, 637. We'll get into this. But what old what's old is new again. The NDP making a big promise that. I think some people are really going to be into, and that's the plan, if elected, to reopen the three ERs that were closed in 2017, closed under the Conservative government, but closed on the advice of a report that was actually commissioned by the NDP. And so does that make sense to you, Victoria, Concordia? Seven Oaks. Seven Oaks. Coming back on the table for ERs. The geography of the, the three open ERs, of course, sort of a linear line, right? Uh, neither one of them are necessarily that far from Portage Avenue, right? You've got St. Boniface, not far from Portage in Maine. HSC, maybe four blocks north of Portage Avenue in the heart of the downtown. And then Grace Hospital. You could understand that there are some people in South Winnipeg, who have to come a long way if they need an emergency department. If you're out in, and Richard used this terminology, the fast-growing northwest corner of the city, not exactly close to go to any of those facilities. And out where I live, Concordia uh, uh, Hospital, they close the ER there. Um, You could understand that certain parts of the city of Winnipeg, people in those parts of the city might have been bothered by the idea that these ERs were closed. Because when we did the math back in 2017, I remember, you know, taking a look at where how the ambulance would go, say if you lived in the northeast corner of Transcona and now you're suddenly coming downtown as opposed to Concordia. If you're in south Winnipeg and you don't have Victoria, you're now coming downtown. It, It did add several minutes on a potential trip in an emergency. Uh, But man... The ER struggled 15 years ago, and they're struggling maybe more now, but it has never been a wonderful, rosy picture out there for for many of our emergency rooms. And so is this the fix? Is return to 2017 the fix? I don't know. Retro, retro gear, retro wear. Kids are into it. I'm not sure everybody's into it. And uh, also, is this a purely political Decision Is this a political promise versus one that is rooted in logistics, one that has a chance of working? And I think the biggest question a lot of people have, eh, you can build the walls, you can build the facilities, insert a bed, have all the fanciest equipment, but are there going to be doctors and nurses and aides to facilitate and, and run these facilities if, they're, if and when they're created, Loren? 780-6868. Let us know what you think about this plan by Wab Canoe and the opposition NDP to return things back to the way they were. Does that make sense to you? We're going to get more into that at 637. Hear from some different voices who've been weighing in on this because all sorts of people have opinions and people within the system, I think, is who we need to hear from. So if you're somebody who actually works 
in one of these urgent cares that used to be an ER, let us know. If you're someone who works in St. Boniface ER, HSC, Grace, that has taken on the load and had all these changes to your ER, what are you seeing? And at the end of the day, man, the big question is going to be, you can make all these changes you want. We don't have the people. So how are we going to fix that? Let alone the money. Let alone the questions about the money, but but the people. The people people question is the biggest one. So we'll get more into that throughout the day. In our next segment, we're going to talk about changes to a rural first responder program. I mean, small towns rely on volunteers for so many things. But to run and help operate fire departments, to be the first first on the scene in the car crash or a heart attack and all the rest. And they've made some big changes that we that some are worried are going to really impact how many new recruits they get and who will even sign up to be a volunteer first responder. We'll get into that at 6.15. And then at 7.37, Greg, I can't wait to speak to the folks behind All-Star Tours because you've been to the Labor Day Classic. Yes, twice. Win or lose, a good time? They won both times. Oh, well, so then there I you go. Maybe, know, maybe you need to hit the road this weekend. <laughs> the, the folks that we're going to speak to at 7.37 met on a bus tour to the Labor Day Classic over 20 years ago. And they remember one another. That's and, that's, a, and, that's a good step. <laughs> and they decided, you know what? <laughs> we could run a trip like this ourselves. And so they have quite successfully. So we'll talk about that bus trip and the, the lure of that game. Because for years, you weren't going in thinking oh, you would win. No, you the were bombers, just going in for the good time. Oh, yeah. The Bombers lost like 12 of 13. Statistically of speaking, it, it was, was horrifying. It, oh, it was absolutely brutal. As Bob Irving pointed out yesterday, the mindset in Saskatchewan was you can go one in 17. If that one is a win against Winnipeg on Labor Day, we can. it's actually almost a palatable, a palatable season. That's an exaggeration to make a point. You get it. It's sort of that college rivalry, the border battle, as they talk about in uh, so many rivalries in U.S. college sports and in professional sports in the United States. So we'll talk about that. And then also we talk about, quote unquote, kids these days, Loren. And of course we have AI. They have all this technology. We all have all this technology at our fingertips encyclopedias worth of stuff in like a, you know, a fraction of the memory that that's taken up in the phones. I don't know why we call them phones anymore. They're just computers that have a phone. It's one piece of the functionality, but the conversation you and I've had plenty of times off the air has to do with soft skills, that ability to interact with one another. How valuable is that going to become in the future? How valuable is it now as we become more withdrawn, more isolated, be, in a lot of cases because of technology. And how do you teach that? How do you teach those skills if it's not something that's already born with, innate to you, or learned? And then how do you measure it? How does an employer in an interview recognize that, yeah, you've got all the qualifications degree-wise, diploma-wise, but what we're looking for is something that's a little bit harder to measure. So we'll get into that at 9.35. We're talking education because kids are back to class Throughout this week and into the next, and the future is now. Uh, I'm looking forward to the boys going back to school. Greg Mackling, Loren McNabb, Cameron Poitras, Sarah McCarthy, and Jeff Forche with you. It is the start on 680 CGOB. Happy Tuesday morning to you. If there is such a thing as a happy Tuesday, my least favorite day of the week, and I know I am not alone in that. But we're going to 
you know, we're going to make things a little bit easier, at least for a few minutes this morning. Winnipeg Blue Bombers travel to Regina for the annual Labor Day Classic this weekend, Loren. And uh, one of our guests this morning, actually for breakfast with the Bombers, a little bit different uh, topic this morning. We're going to talk about the Labor Day Classic and different ways to go there. One way in particular, in fact. Yeah, they're not players, their fans, and now business owners who bring fans to the Labor Day Classic with their tour. And you get on the bus, they have a couple nights in a hotel, you have tailgating, got different things that go along with it. And so it had us talking about the tours we've done, whether it be on a big trip, a European vacation, or maybe just a tour to the museum. And you've had a guide that was good, bad, or terrible, whatever. I think a lot of us have tour stories. So that's what we're going to do. And we're playing. Tell them what they win. Well... If you have the best story this morning on tours, you get to go to the Banjo Bowl, the sold-out Banjo Bowl at IG Field, September 9th. That's a week this Saturday right here in Winnipeg. So let's uh, tour around the studio, shall we? Starting with uh, the man in master control, Mr. Jeff Forche. Oh, hello there. Uh, So the last tour I went on would probably be when I was in San Antonio, Texas, back in January. And uh, we did both the, the, the boat tour of, uh, what's it called, Cam? I know you've been there. Uh, uh, the, are you talking about the Alamo or the Riverwalk? The Riverwalk, river walk, yeah. yeah. We, we did the Riverwalk, and you go on the boat, and that was cool. But we also went to the caverns in San Antonio, which is like you go down to this like underground cave, and it's really, really cool. It's hot and moist oh, down there. It's too humid like, down there. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's really, really bad. But the problem was that uh, I, I didn't know this up until I got back in Winnipeg that my chest was feeling very, very heavy, and like, uh, anyways, I believe I got a fungal pneumonia. <laughs> oh, and I had that for like I don't a week. I know why I'm laughing. So I know, but I, <laughs> stay out of the caves, Forche. People like us aren't made for the caves. I know, I know. Like, apparently, it's because like there's a bunch of bat poop that's oh. on the ceiling and everything like that. So it's probably the humidity plus that and getting that into your lungs and like. <laughs> I was not feeling too well for the, the next week after I got home, and uh, I had to pretend that I was doing all good because I wanted to come to work because I didn't want to be cooked up at home. So, uh, yeah, that's my story. All right. Uh, that no thanks for, thanks for coughing fungal pneumonia all over the workplace, Forche. <laughs> it's, it's not, um, what's it called? Uh, contagious. contagious. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. So, <laughs> that's what they say now. What about you, McCarthy? Yeah, mine is right here in Winnipeg. Um, when I was probably grade six, seven, I want to say, um, took a field trip to the Manitoba Museum, and we got a tour there. Um, and what made it memorable, though, was, I don't know if they do this now or allow this now, but if they do, that would be awesome. Um, our whole class got to stay there overnight. Mm-hmm. And have like a night at the museum moment. And it was very fun, very cool. Um, but there were a couple of parent chaperones who... Uh, like to spook us a little bit. We were staying in the Arctic exhibit and just all the time, the parents would be popping out behind the polar bears and like putting the flashlight in the face, telling spooky stories. So that was a fun memory for me. I was hoping, I was hoping that the, the exhibits, exhibits would come to life. Oh, I was like, the movie. <laughs> they don't no, come to I life. Always felt, I always felt bad for that poor seal. Oh my God. And oh, exhibit with yes. a color bear. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I know exactly when you're talking about Poitras. What about you, Cammy? Oh, you know, like I'm, I'm such a pig-headed idiot sometimes. Like I, there's, I, I had to be convinced to go on tours because a lot of the times I like to think, well, you know, I've done, you know, menial research. I spent, uh, you know, half a day reading internet articles. I can probably figure this whole place out. Um, 
And usually I, I go on tours, like I did a bunch of them in Europe. Uh, you know, usually they involved a, a beer somewhere at the end. And it was always wonderful. I always learned something. And I have to constantly kick myself. It's like, Cam, why don't you just, why don't you just like, you don't know everything. Why don't you go with somebody that can tell you interesting stories and explain little things that you wouldn't even have noticed. Um, and, and I do that and I'm, it's a constant battle with myself. Expert consultation, Poitras. Yeah. <laughs> Try it out sometime. Yeah, I guess sometimes. Yeah. It, it usually works out well for me, but, uh, yeah, the, the best one was when I was in Prague and we were just walking around and it was this very, very interesting guy telling us all these little stories and the King was here and did that and stuff like that. And, um, that one was really, really cool. All right. Prague. I want to go to Prague so badly. Yeah. A lot of fun. One of the things about tours is that you get, sometimes you're just not in the mood for the guide. Like you just want to walk around or you just want to read it in your book or you want to just sort of soak it in. And sometimes you need that. You want to have the expertise telling you what you're missing or what was important about this yeah. thing that you're standing there looking at. And it just depends on where you're at on that day, right? And I've had great tours where I've just been, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I didn't know that. Or you, I've done the European vacation tours where the guy was short and sweet and to the point, And then you went off and got to enjoy yourself. But the one that stands out forever, and we quote him to this day, our entire family, because when I lived in Jerusalem for Global National, my family came over, my husband, um, and we did tours around Israel, but then we went to Petra into Jordan. And we were like, we should hire someone this time. Like, we don't yeah. want to just wander around and not know what we're looking at and go through the desert and then go into Petra and all the rest. And so his name was Riyad and he was driving us around for a couple of days and he'd have these stories and it got to the point, like a few hours in, we're like, I don't think this is, this doesn't seem right. Like, this seems like incorrect information. And then you'd Google them <laughs> and you're like, yeah, this is definitely not the actual history of this place. And then no. we, as we kept going and finally my sister went out and bought a book. So that when he'd, <laughs> so he'd say something, then she'd look it up and she'd look at us and she'd give us a thumbs up like, yeah, he's right or he's wrong. So we're walking into Petra, which is just this amazing, beautiful place. And there's these like, dip, I can't even explain it, dug into the stone. There's this sort of like what looks like maybe water would have carried down, down the walk, you know, and they created it so water would flow, but we weren't sure. And we, Riyadh, what happened there? Like, how did that get there? What's the story behind that? And he pauses and goes, nature. Wow. <laughs> Congratulations. So now whenever we don't know the answer to something, we're like, nature. My father-in-law <laughs> always says, I know, I know exactly. It's one of those things. <laughs> Tuesday morning, it's the start. Greg Mackling, Loren McNabb, Brett McGarry returns tomorrow. We are giving away tickets to the Banjo Bowl. Saturday, September 9th. All you have to do is tell us your story about a tour that you were on. We're going to talk tours to the Labor Day Classic coming up in about a half hour's time. In the meantime, we want your text messages, 204-780-6868, so you can get in on winning these tickets. George has a heck of a story we're going to share with you in about 10 minutes' time. But we start this hour back at university. Loren, what are you going to do after high school? It's a question every single one of us has asked. The question every high school kid will get asked in the months and years ahead.
And I think it's safe to say for many, that's not an easy answer. And even if you do have an answer, the odds are your feelings about your chosen career, they might change as you get going, whether you're taking that gap year, whether you're in college, whether you're in university. And so it's one of the reasons why the University of Manitoba created what's called the University One program years ago. It's designed for students who aren't sure which degree path they want to take. So they sign up for different courses and different streams that still meet first year requirements. And so this morning we wanted to find out how popular this option is and how the next generation is deciding their future. We say good morning to Brandy Usick, Executive Director, Student Engagement and Success at the U of M. Good morning. Good morning. Let's just start with University One. Uh, like, What was the reason rationale behind it? How long ago did it get brought in? And, and maybe give us a bit of background. Sure, well, it happens to be our 25th anniversary this fall. It was introduced uh, back in uh, 1998 and uh, as a single point of entry to enhance career and program choices um, and, yeah, to increase success for students in subsequent years. So, for example, I might be someone who's like, should I go into sciences? Should I go into arts? Am I more of a math brain? I can do a bit of everything and then decide a year later which bachelor degree I'm going after? Absolutely. Absolutely. So it was originally intended for all students to start in University One and, uh, and to allow students, for those who are very focused, to register for those courses that they need to uh, apply for an advanced uh, entry degree, uh, or for those that want to just explore a little bit before they make a decision about what degree program they wish to, uh, to focus on. So Brandy, 25 years later, what percentage of first-year students are enrolled in University One? Yeah, so right now in, in 2023, about uh, you know half of all direct entry students still start at University One. So more students uh, start at U1 than any other individual direct entry undergrad program. What does that tell you in terms of what you've seen over the years about what they're looking to do? You know, are, are you seeing any trends from students or noticing anything different now than you wouldn't have maybe when this program was first implemented and, and, and then you're adapting along the way? Because I think kids, it's safe to say all of us struggle with our decisions at 18, 19, 48, 49. And so what are you hearing from the students themselves? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, what it was then and what it is now is, is what you're, you know, been saying around students wanting to, uh, you know, may have a clear uh choice in terms of where they want to go, but then may make some changes in, in, along the way, whether that's introduction to a, a field of study they hadn't been exposed to before, uh, and meaningful interactions with uh, professors and other students in the class. Um, their own work experience may lead them to a, a different path. And so it's just important for us to be there to support their decision making and to give them the tools uh, to make some good decisions in terms of their career development uh, and their progress throughout the program. So with regard to the choices that uh, students were making 25, 20, 15 years ago versus now, was it always the case where this was as popular then as it is now, so to speak, Brandy? Well, yeah. Well, back uh, when it was first introduced, it was all students uh, started or most students started uh, at University One. It was almost mandatory, right? Sorry to interrupt you. Correct. Okay, okay. Absolutely, yeah, and and now um, a lot of the uh, uh, the faculties um, there's more that now offer direct entry, so students are able to uh, go into different faculties now. Um, but now we still have we still have more students coming into University One. Yeah, we remarked off air that you have one of the greatest titles in terms of being the yes. student <laughs> engagement and success, the executive director of engagement. <laughs> 
and success. It's a it's wonderful. What does that mean in terms of what you do and how you guide students towards success, Brandy? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it's a large portfolio, so I've got some gr- a great team that I work with and, and focusing on different aspects of the student experience. So helping students in terms of b- being successful, so whether that's helping with um, honing their academic skills or academic writing, um, academic advising, to some of those engagement pieces, whether that's exploring their career path, um, uh, helping them connect with experiential learning opportunities, getting involved on campus, um, you know, getting involved with the student life on campus in terms of, you know, whether that's attending Bison sport games or connecting with student groups. It's, it's the whole range. What are you seeing in the students that are coming from grade 12 and, and into university in terms of their preparedness, attitudes, you know, anything? We, we know that there's been a lot of change as we come out of the pandemic. What are you just seeing in the kids? Yeah, it was a rough couple of years, you know, post uh, during the pandemic, and uh, but I feel that you know we're it's a different group of students coming in uh, this fall compared to say the year before or two years ago, um, where students uh, are you know th- there's always been a range of of, of preparedness. Uh, this is a, a time of a lot of development uh, for students in terms of figuring out you know moving from high school to university, um, becoming adults, becoming more in- independent thinking about where they're going and what they need to do to get there. So there can be some anxiety, but there is also a lot of, um, you know, enthusiasm as well. Brandy, we appreciate this. And uh, once again, if your position ever becomes open, I would like to apply for it because I just want this on my business card. Brandy Usick, Executive Director, Student Engagement and Success at the University of Manitoba. We wish you nothing but success. And of course, all the U1 students who are embarking on the beginning of their post-secondary journey starting next week. We appreciate the time. Great. Thank you so much. And call out for all students to join us for Welcome Day on Monday, on Tuesday. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye for now. Uh, no, probably no beer bash at Taché on Friday. Oh, I would say one of the things that's changed dramatically would mm. be that orientation mm-hmm. experience. It used to be very much about mm-hmm. party, how much, party, how party. How much beer could you drink in the first week and survive? Uh, oh, I mean, that wasn't like an official agenda. It's not a course. Thought it was. 7.14, Tuesday morning. McNabb, Mackling with you. McGarry returns tomorrow. University One, have you got uh, kids in your house embarking on their journey? Maybe you're starting University One. Trepidation, excitement, let us know. Seven thirty-seven, seven thirty-eight, or in this case, 7.40. Tuesday morning means breakfast with the Bombers, brought to you by cooperators investing in your future together. So the countdown is on to a weekend that draws Blue Bomber fans into enemy territory every single year, Loren. The Labor Day Classic, five sleeps away, and we know Saskatchewan Rough Riders and their fans are looking to take our team down. As Bob Irving told us yesterday, you know, it's always tough going into Mosaic, but... Either way, no matter how that game goes, there's something special, love it or hate it, about this rivalry, Greg. Something special about this weekend that has people willing to make that six, seven, eight hour trip. That's right. So today we want to introduce you to someone who, along with the help of another fan, have made it their business to bring as many Blue Bomber fans as possible to Regina. We say good morning to Ken Burns of All Star Tours. Ken, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. So how many buses, got to know, how many buses do you have going to Regina this weekend? Just two. 
Now you say just two. Uh, I, I sense that perhaps you've taken more in the past or perhaps you could have taken more this year. Well, we've taken three many times. We're going to take three uh, next year, the next couple of years for sure. The demand's been there. One time we took six buses and then uh, we couldn't get enough tickets after that because the, the riders actually won the Great Cup in 2007 and it kind of kind of limited our ticket sales. But uh, yeah, no, it's a good time every year and everybody keeps coming back. So we're good. Your good time, this good time you're now giving to Blue Bombers fans started with your good time at least 20 years ago, Ken. Tell us how this came about with you and Brett. Uh, 2001, I met Brett and then became very good friends and I found out he was friends with my uh, half-brother from a, another story there. But uh, that was really coincidence and we're on this bus and it's boring. People are knitting and reading and I'm going, I could run a better trip. And he goes, well, I could fill the bus. And I go, well, let's do it. And that was, uh, you know, 22 years ago. So we've been running them ever since. This is a great story, Ken. I want to just ask, are you on a speakerphone? And if yes, if you could just switch off. Will do. Perfect. That's great, because I, I want to recap that story. You, because you and Brett, who now run these tours, you were strangers, right? You met in a bus, found the trip boring, and thought you could make a better, funner, funner, more fun trip. That works. So for those that haven't been, tell us how much funner it is. Like, there's not not anything much more fun than getting no. together for one of these trips, is there, Ken? Like, well, just just tell us yeah, about it. We how- we're football fans. We were, you know, combined, we were probably over 25 years season ticket holders been to several great cups and uh now we're almost 60 70 years season ticket holders combined and uh we know what a football fan wants and what they expect what kind of you know environment they want and uh high energy a lot of fun get the music going it's party atmosphere and i could tell you stories of people met on the our bus and got married uh father daughter came out the father packed it in after 10 years the daughter still comes on our trip she brings her fiance now she's in her 30s it's it's uh, it's just, it's just kept growing, and uh, I'd say out of a hundred and people on our two buses, we have probably maybe ten new people. The rest are all repeats, and uh, yeah, we have some new drives as well. Maybe about twenty five, thirty of those. I'm curious, yeah. how many people can maybe did the tour like you and, and Brett? You didn't know each other, and then you have these friends that you make at the game. How often do you hear that stories that strangers? Like the, like the story we shared from George, strangers become this group, this close-knit group, just because of the fun they had at the Labor Day Classic. Well, that's true, yeah. Everybody, you know, we keep the same groups together on each bus because they know each other really well. We uh, group seat them at the game. We group seat them on the bus so they can communicate all along, and we can get them on the same floor, even helps them at the hotel. And, yeah, we have a great downtown hotel, high-end, and uh, everybody likes it. And, yeah, and that's a... Uh, Tag weekends, girls weekends, traditional, you know, and we've got the big, uh, big bomber fans on there. Golden boy, bomber girl, chicken man. Like they, they, they love us and they keep coming back and we love them. So all good. <laughs> What's amazing is there's thousands of people listening right now. And many of them know exactly who you're speaking about <laughs> in code. What sounds like code <laughs> and all these individuals and these super fans that participate. Uh, have you seen a change, Ken, over the years? Like, you know, so, so many w- women are, are into football and the blue bombers and, and, and have you seen a, a change in, in the dynamic and in terms of the demographic uh, of who likes to come on these tours? Sure, it was probably uh, 80-20, and now it's probably 60-40-ish, maybe 35. But, 
no, it's uh, they're having a good time, and we know what we're doing, and and they keep coming back. We have a tailgate party that's put out there special for us. We have a buddy who's about 150 yards away from the stadium. We go backyard tailgate party, Wayne's World, it's called. So you know, people know Labor Day, they know Wayne's World. I have pictures. I have video. I was there last year. <laughs> it was an absolute, <laughs> an absolute blast. Ken, go ahead, Loren. So you have two buses going that this weekend. That's how many people? That's a hundred. So a hundred people going, and you're sold out. You're hoping to do three buses next year. So if people are looking to get in on the action early, you told me last night you're going to start buying those tickets for next year, just in a couple of weeks' times, if you can. Ken, uh, where do they go for more information? Uh, allstartours.ca on uh, on the net. And, um, yeah, we were sold out in three weeks in March. It was just gone. And uh, I think the U-Drives went about mid-June. So the demand has actually never been higher. We love our Blue Bombers. Saskatchewan loves their riders. It makes for a fantastic weekend. Lots of fun. Who knew you could have so much fun in the city of Regina, but uh, <laughs> it, it really does happen. Ken, thanks for this. Have a blast this weekend. We appreciate okay. your we appreciate your time and uh, what you're doing to bring Blue Bomber fans uh, together and into the heart of Riderville. Appreciate it. Okay, have them give us a call in March, not now. Sounds good, partner. <laughs> yeah, sounds great. <laughs> are you with your municipal services roads recreational facilities fire ambulance along with police services are probably at the top of the list of things we expect from our community that's probably for most of us along with i would say loren recycling and garbage pickup safe to say no matter where you live you're likely to have a concern or complaint about any one of those things or maybe even something else so we've been talking for several days about what's being described as a mountain of garbage on Flora, a resident has been screaming for days about this situation. And quite honestly, I assumed once this was made public in the way it was over CGOB and Global that this would get cleaned up because sometimes city crews just don't see it. But when you see the pictures, you'd think someone would have raced down there to clean that up. Well, is that the case? Clay Young is in the north end of Winnipeg and joins us now. Good morning, Clay. Hey, how you doing? Well, I'm curious and, and not yet furious, but I might get there by the end of this day, this segment, Clay. What, what do you know? Well, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm furious. I ju- I'm just shaking my head. Like, really? Like, come on here. So we're in the uh, back alley uh, between Flora and Selkirk Avenues. And we were alerted to this uh, last week uh, by area resident uh, Roger Deneau. He's got a house just uh, down the ways here. And uh, when we came up, we were just here, right, Roger? We were doing yeah. live hits. It, it's hard to describe it unless you've actually seen it. Uh, it's not just garbage. It's like, it's just, it's debris, it's old couches, it's um, furniture. Uh, there's needles. It's just piled up on top of each other. Uh, there's property here. So I've been talking to you. I was here, you know, with a global crew yes. on Thursday. My colleague Richard Cloutier was talking to you last week. That's Richard right. talked to you yesterday. Yeah. I'm talking to you again today. You've been talking to the city. The city, you actually talked to a human being yesterday, a spokesperson with the city who said, they're coming out here, cleaning this stuff up, 
today, which was yesterday, yeah. and take pick it up for me. Okay, well, I got uh, woke up Monday morning having my coffee and received a beautiful phone call, I thought, and I was told by bylaw officer Jeff that, uh, yeah, we're going to be there today. This was going to be clean by the end of the day. So... Uh, you know, this is the fourth time I've been told that. I thought maybe the fourth time might be a charm, you know, I'd be lucky. Sure enough, around 4 o'clock, uh, spoke to Richard, and sure enough, uh, nothing was done, and we're right back to right back to point A, uh, starting all over again. Yeah, and I, I sent the city an email last night, and uh, they actually got back to me, and I said, you know, what what's going on here? What What's... What's up with this, which is a safety hazard? Uh, like, there's needles, used needles here. The The place has been torched a couple of times. You just showed me some video of a... F- yeah. People are setting fire to this, this area. You've got the guy living right next door. He's I've talked to him. He doesn't know, you know, he sleeps yeah. with one eye open. Well, you have to. You have to worry about what's going on. And when I showed you that flame, that was just last week. So, I mean, alone, six, seven fires relit. And as you can, you know, clearly see, you know, this is a mess. And like we, you stated, it's a hazard. There's like glass, needles. And clean. there's kids playing around in this. I, there's a coloring book right over here. Exactly. I mean, this is, you know, I don't know what to say. Anymore. Exactly. We have kids that are, I'd say, from where I'm looking, maybe 20 feet away from me. And they want to have fun. But I'll, us parents, we have to pull our kids back in the yard and say, no, you know, we got a junkyard back here and we don't want you hurt. Right. The city, uh, in this uh, email that they sent back, uh, I'll, I'll just sort of paraphrase it, the whole thing. I'm not, I'm not going to read the whole thing. But uh, the city is, I'm quoting, the city is investigating... The area in question, where we are right now, however, for privacy reasons, it cannot share any enforcement action at this time. Uh, If a property owner uh, fails to clean up the area, the city will do so at the owner's cost, which is applied to the property tax bill. We had Tom Ethans from uh, Take Pride Winnipeg uh, with us last week. He was here. He looked it over, and, you know, he said a lot of things about this. But he also said this has become a dumping ground. People from other parts of the city are coming here, yeah. knowing they're going to just dump it here in the alley and just drive on. Well, yeah, it's become more of just an eyesore. Uh, I mean, when you told, you know, if everybody just did their job and picked up a little bit of garbage and helped along, we can maybe get this cleaned up. But we got to go back to the hazard. The needles, the broken glass, the city's got to come and do this. And with the investigation, I don't even know what that means. Investigate what? This is three years of us bugging them. And we're talking about a half dozen neighbors that have made the phone calls. And the gentleman you just worked, that that owns a company just down, he's called called a half a dozen times himself. And where everything's falling on deaf ears, and this is everybody. Yeah, he seemed to, when I talked to him, he just seemed to throw his hands up in the air. He said, I've pretty much given up. Well, because we're getting frustrated. We don't, you know, we don't know what else to do. And we hear stuff like the city is going to investigate. I'm sorry. I don't know what they need to investigate. There's a junkyard here, and this is three years, and we are getting frustrated. And last resort is, hey, I might make signs that we march down to City Hall. All right. Um, thank you for this again. All right. I hope we don't have to come back again. Well, I hope, you. you know, today <laughs> might be the day that the, the, the city finally sends in some front-end loaders. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I appreciate you keeping us informed and, and keep us and let us know what's going on here. And okay, well, uh, like I said, if we, if we have to come back, we'll come back. 
Okay, I'm glad that they cleaned you guys in form, and hopefully the next time I talk, it's good news, and it's been cleaned up. All right. Hope you got all that, guys. Back to you. Oh, Waiting for the I study. I am serious. Waiting and for the study. Listen, it, who's responsible seems to be what the problem is. They don't know. They're trying to figure out who's responsible. Is it the property owner that's responsible for clearing it up? Is it the people? Is it the residents? Who is it? Nobody's doing but it. Nobody's doing it. So first of all, I would put Sorry, a I'm yelling. I would put a plea out. If the city's if if they if this isn't in their purview or they it comes down that this isn't their mess to clean up, what can we do to help? Is there somebody who has a truck? out there who does this kind of cleanup can we work together to clean this up for these area residents and see what we can do to fix this for them three years this has been ongoing and then beyond that i had actually back in may contacted the city greg for numbers on illegal dumping because back in 2017 2018 they had this two-year pilot project where they were putting cameras out right they wanted to catch people who were dropping off like it's couches and crates and carts it's not just yeah, like this a is couple not trash make, bags this is or, just not, uh, not litter litter it, this it's, is it's dropped garbage like intentionally it's a makeshift landfill is what it's so become. They, when they had that pilot project they gave gave out 32 tickets for illegal dumping as of may this year they had given out zero but we know it's a problem so do we need to put more resources back into tracking down people who are doing this kind of nonsense Mackling and McNabb with you. And Loren, we want to jump into things right now in this final hour of the start. Because if you live in rural Manitoba, if you live in a small town, then you know that volunteers are a huge part of your local fire department. But recent changes to the training requirements for volunteer first responders in many communities have some sounding the alarm and us asking why these changes were made in the first place. Before we get to the why, here's Catherine Dornian with What's Going On. Fire departments like the one in Headingley are run by volunteers. Often they're the first on scene at a medical emergency, sometimes 30 minutes before an ambulance can get there. But first responder Glenn Reimer is worried new mandatory training requirements from the College of Paramedics will turn new recruits away. It's going to be a huge challenge to find somebody who's willing to commit 312 hours uh, uh, to get the training and then at the end uh, be a volunteer. Before about six months ago, the training was 120 hours. Now with it nearly tripled, they haven't been able to add any new members. The cost to train has tripled too, now thirteen dollars to $15,000 for one person. And as Fire Chief John Sparham puts it, there's no guarantees. We'll invest this money in somebody. They could go on one call. It could be quite traumatic, and that's the the end of their their career. 17-year-old male with shortness of breath. Both are worried for smaller, more remote communities with just a handful of members, which could end up shuttering. Catherine Dornian, Global News. So I live in rural Manitoba. I live in a small town. I grew up in a small town, and I'd like to know why this is happening. We asked the college to join us. Global News asked the college for an explanation or at least an interview, and and we haven't heard back. In the meantime, Richard Cloutier has been digging into this extensively over the past couple days and joins us now. What can you tell us, Richard? Because I'd like to know what's going on behind this. Well, behind the scenes, there's this bitter battle between um, those that are used to running volunteer services, and I have to be clear, this is paid volunteer in the sense that if you go to a call, you're paid, but otherwise, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're on call, you're doing your thing, and you're waiting for your phone to flash. But uh, what 
has occurred here was the college, and this is a recent phenomenon, the college gets in and my sense is, is that they want to increase the level of training so that the response that you have in Winnipeg and in Brandon and in Oak Lake and in Headingley is all the same. So they've said the next generation of first responders need to really increase their training. It's the industry standard. But you have all these rural fire chiefs that are going, wait a minute, it's a struggle to get and keep volunteers to begin with. Um, you're essentially telling these volunteers that you have to take time off your own work and take time away from your family to take a course that is essentially eight hours a day times eight weeks to be able to be a volunteer. And they're saying that that's a non-starter. Maybe if you institute this over a couple, three years and you have people train on Saturdays, take a course here and there to get the 312 hours, that might be a solve. But so far, the college has just been saying, no, this is going to be the standard. So, Richard, I can see this going really only one of two ways, and that's that nobody's going to volunteer anymore or very few people or much fewer numbers of people will will put their hands up and get involved in this. Or the other option is going to be paid EMS workers in all these small towns and all these rural municipalities around the province of Manitoba. Am I missing something? Well, some people have said that that is the agenda at work here, that they want more full-time paramedics. The problem is we don't have enough full-time paramedics to begin with. You know, very much like what we've heard in the last few days about we're going to hire more doctors and solve the problem with more nurses and more technicians. You just can't grow these folks in a matter of days, weeks, or months. This is going to take several years to do. And so while it's aspirational to have more paramedics out in the field, these folks are the first couple of links in the chain of survival. And when you think about it, even though they're volunteers, they can get to the station to get to the equipment within five to 10 minutes and often to a scene within 15 minutes or less. The way the paramedic system is set right now in rural Manitoba, even within the city of Winnipeg's outskirts, you're waiting sometimes 15, 20 minutes up to an hour for that ambulance. So if you start to remove those first two links of, of survival, suddenly you're talking about life and death situations. And these firefighters are, are just distraught. They're angry. Um, they've been trying to work behind the scenes to solve this. And the paramedic college, who's, again, refused our opportunities for a recorded or a live interview, they're giving us a statement saying that we're working with the stakeholders towards a resolution. Everybody that I talk to is saying, there's no resolution in sight. It's going to take either a change in the legislation or somebody from Broadway to really intervene in this and, and to do the solve. Otherwise, we're going to see more and more volunteers leave. And in some cases, there's one case in particular, the Miami uh, first responders, which is a community near Carmen, Miami, Manitoba, they're down to four. And the expectation is, is that department will close within the next couple of years. Yeah, I'm scratching my head over this. I think long-term people might listen and think, okay, I can see the long-term agenda here, but short-term, that sounds like a whole lot of pain. Richard, thank you for your time on this. You bet. And I already have a construction company that's willing to 
haul away the garbage. We just need to find a few people that are willing to pick up some needles on Flora. All right, that's Flora in Selkirk. It's a real mess. We put out the call about half an hour ago. Okay, if the city isn't going to clean it up, if the property can't clean it up, if the community residents have their hands in the air, who can help out here? So we now have a truck company. We need someone who's good with needles and understanding how to deal with some of the dangers that might come with that. 204-780-6868. Your feedback on this and all other stories uh, that we're talking about this morning. Mark Baker lives up in Selkirk area. He says this regarding the garbage dumping in Winnipeg. I have a similar related story in the city of Selkirk, but more to do with uncared for properties with weeds growing up to four feet tall. I notified the city of Selkirk on July 4th regarding this issue. After five weeks of no action, I finally had to storm into their weed control branch and tell them the photos would be going directly to Global News and CJOB if it wasn't dealt with Within three days, within two hours, yeah. it was all taken care of. Squeaky wheel gets the grease. That from Marks. Well, we are amplifying that squeaky wheel for the residents in that area of Winnipeg, Flora, Selkirk, that part of the city where they have basically a garbage dump in their back lane. We appreciate you all stepping up this point in time. <music> conversation we were having i guess it was yesterday right uh, was some of it may have been on the air some of us off the air sometimes i forget if we were just it talking all- on the phone or if we were in the newsroom <laughs> the point is this these hard and soft skills can help future proof your career that was the headline from a linkedin creators uh, a year ago and soft skills remain in the headlines today and it's something that we think is really important to teach our children Right around the world, I went looking this morning and just Googled soft skills and then hit the news tab. And just, there's just articles everywhere about it, whether it's talking about it, whether it's courses offering it, uh, whether it's saying why it's needed. There's one article out about how it will disrupt um, the hiring for, for women, perhaps, because there might be more soft skills based on gender. You know, there's all sorts of conversation about it. We wanted to delve more into it. Like, exactly what are they? How do you measure them? How do you grow them? And so Janella McIntyre is a corporate trainer, coach, consultant, author, She's the president of Partners in Discovery and also has taught courses at the University of Winnipeg on soft skills. And we say good morning to Janella. Good morning. What do we mean when we say soft skills? Well, there are a variety of skills um, when we talk about soft skills. I think the first ones that come to mind are the ones that impact how we relate to each other, so our interpersonal skills. But they're more than just that. There are are other subtle skills such as flexibility, resilience, resilience. you know, the ability to be managing um, diverse points of view. Um, stress management is, a, is really a soft skill as well. Um, uh, self-awareness, um, self-expression, these are all soft skills that we use in relation to ourselves and others. So Janella, why are so many people, and we're talking executives, large corporations, smaller corporations, medium side, Fortune magazine, uh, even educators at the highest level are talking about the future of work and the requirement for more people with soft skills. Do we know why that is? And do you think that's accurate? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. I think soft skills are more essential and valuable now Um and will be in the future of work than they are even currently. And and the re- some of the reasons are just the, the fast pace of change in the work world. So, for example, we know that 
the work world has changed significantly into hybrid work environments. People, some people working from home, some people working part time from home, um, working remotely. That's more of a global. Uh, companies can be more global than they ever were before, and so in order to create that sense and that focus for teams to work on the common goal for people to be able to work well with each other, which is the basic requirement of any workforce, hybrid or no, um, you need those skills that I think have been uh, are being lost through technology, through distance, and through, you know, how do we do this? We had some uh, almost automatic ways of communicating with each other, measuring the body language, the 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 uh, interpersonal skills that we have when we see each other. But it's harder. It's it's more difficult when we're when it's a hybrid and work environment. And another one would be the the, the rate of change, the technology changing. Um, again, we need to be more flexible to be able to communicate well. The diversity of the work environment, our work environments are more diverse than ever before. Being able to understand our own positions, being able to understand things such as unconscious bias, being able to be aware of our own positions and our own perspectives. And I would think another thing is the leadership that's required now. Um, and, And leadership, whether it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, or it's going to be 10 years or more into the future, it's still going to be about how people feel about you. Do they want to follow your direction? Do they respect you as a leader? And all of those things require emotional intelligence and soft skills. How much of it, you know, you talk a bit about the fact that we have technology that's changing our world, and so therefore you'll need the people to do the more of that that analysis, have that higher EQ. But when I think about how the world has changed so much, you know, we may be doing meetings over Teams now as opposed to in person, mm-hmm. or we're all on our phones, and I try to decipher mm-hmm. decipher emotion from a text, which is just not possible, right? And so you react to things in a way because of the technology that's there. So it's also changing the way we even know how to respond to someone because you're looking at that email or text and thinking, so now do I ask, are you angry? Or assume they're angry or respond as I would to an angry person? Like It, it makes it so much more difficult. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and that's something that's happened with the increased technology such as texting and and. Uh, emails we don't we we miss a significant section of the nonverbal cues and we don't we may not check in we may not you know find out are, are, are you know is this person angry at me how should i respond sometimes we make assumptions and the other thing about the um technology is that one thing that we can't do over email very well over text very well is understand how am I being in relation to you? So I can I know what I said and I can read what you said, but how do I know how I am in relation to you? How am I having an impact on you? That's really hard by email. That's really hard by Teams, um, and Teams is just a, is a completely different issue as well because if we're on meetings in teams and we don't have our cameras on, which a lot of people don't like to have cameras on when they're in teams, then we don't get that nonverbal communication that we might if we see their face. 
So, yeah, it's uh, it's much more difficult. The technology makes it more difficult. And we have to actually expand and, and stretch our soft skills and develop them even more so that we're able to bridge that gap that technology is um, providing. Janella McIntyre is a corporate trainer, coach, consultant, and president of Partners in Discovery. Also has taught courses at the University of Winnipeg on soft skills. And Janella, you know, once upon a time, I was a manager. I was responsible for for hiring and training new staff. And I always had a philosophy that if somebody came in with a good attitude, presented themselves well, was a good communicator, and was maybe lacking in technical skills, that, that, that never typically scared me off. I could teach you how to do a lot of things on the technical side. Can I learn and can others learn the soft skills? How do we teach those? Because they, they seem to be, you know, based on your list, a lot of them are based on life and lived experience. Right, exactly. Um, there's a couple of ways that you can that you can teach um, soft skills, and one is to be aware of it. So for a lot of times, people aren't aware of how they're coming across to others. So literally having someone give you feedback about some absence of behaviors or some presence of behaviors that's not helping, that's one way. Just feedback from manager, feedback from friends, self-reflection and assessment. What kind of feedback have I had in the past? What kind of pattern there is there? And there is also uh, what you mentioned, which is emotional intelligence. There is, you can take um, something called the EQI 2.0, which is an emotionally intelligent um, instrument that measures your EQ. And that has 15 different subcategories, including interpersonal skills, self-awareness, self-respect, or self-confidence, I should say, and um, assertiveness. And so you can also measure those. So you can, that's the first step to learning them, which is finding out what presence of behaviors do I need to change? And what are the absence of behaviors that I'm, what are behaviors I'm not demonstrating? and that I need to demonstrate in order to communicate well with others. And you're absolutely right. Technical skills, you can, you can teach the technical skills. The soft skills are ones that are, are, are more subtle, but definitely teachable if you have good feedback and you have someone who's giving you that information and uh, helping you develop it on a step-by-step basis. We have just less than a minute here, but I do want to ask. So now we're telling people that, that soft skills are going to be more greatly valued today and going forward. How do I know then if I'm someone who's working on those things, taking courses and improving them, that I'm going to then be measured differently in that job interview? How do you assess as an employer bringing people in who has those types of skills? Because that might take days, weeks, months to appear. Right. Well, I definitely think when we have an interviewing process that we give case-by-case studies, or case studies for people to say how how would they have dealt with this in the past? How would they deal with the situation? You can also use something like the the emotional intelligence questionnaire in order to determine a person's level of EQ, and that's one of the very few um, instruments that you can use for selection and hiring. And you know the, the basic is is how did you feel in that interview? How did that person come across to you? Because soft skills is what soft skills actually create a feeling in a person, and it's that you know, that coming across in a, in a encouraging and exciting and um, um, in, a, in an exciting manner that I'm, I'm excited about being here and how I communicate well with the individual. 
Janala, thank you for this. We appreciate the insight. This is something that that parents and uh, individuals alike will be uh, thinking about a little bit more closely after a discussion this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Take care. Loren, uh, you obviously have had some soft skills for, for some time. What do you credit that to? Oh, I don't know. I, 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 part of me wonders how much I do when you hear certain things and you think you're good at something and then you realize you're not. And sometimes you think you've read the room right and you get that wrong, that you took the temperature and you got it completely backwards. And then sometimes you walk out and you think, you know, I can see the underlying emotion that's going on here. I would credit any, I would credit... <laughs> I would credit most of it to my mom. Don't want to leave out my dad, but my mom's very strong on this effect about the listening and learning and watching and self-awareness and all the rest.